Turning back to Luke 17 this morning, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, we'll be in Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. Luke 17, 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a village, or and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Uh, Father, we ask that uh, you would open our eyes uh, to your word, that uh, you would apply it to our hearts, and that, Father, we can live uh, in light of your word for your glory. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, if there's anyone who is yet unconverted, uh, Father, that your Holy Spirit might pull the scales off the eyes that they may see Christ in all his beauty and cling to him. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, we looked at the text uh, previous to this one, uh, verses 7 through 9. I want to begin by just reminding us of uh, this text, which uh, really carries over uh, into the text we're looking at this morning uh, in verse 7 of Luke 17. We read, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And Jesus tells this little parable because there's a major problem in Israel. The problem is spiritual pride of the people of Israel. It's the people of Israel having an entitled heart. It's the leaders in Israel expecting if the Savior would show up, surely the Savior would come to them and thank them for all that they have done in their service to Him. And so Jesus is cutting at the heart of the major spiritual problem in Israel. It's a, it's a spiritual pride being the people of God, God's chosen people. It's uh, the Jews believing that uh, they were better than everyone else, especially any Gentile that uh, knew not God. And so as Jesus uh, presses in and says, after you've done everything, <laughs> served your best, done exactly what I called you to do, when you're done with that, say, 
we are just unworthy servants. On your best day of service, your attitude ought to be, it's not good enough. For God is God and we are not. And so we looked at how even Job recognized his righteous as he was, that he could not stand before God, that he needed a mediator. And as I think about spiritual pride, I think about myself. It's a sin that I recognize in my own heart often. Uh, how quickly my heart can get away from me and I can mount up on such high standing uh, above uh, those around me and especially above uh, those who do not know God. Maybe one of the most humbling moments of my life was... uh, in the middle of one of my biblical counseling classes that I was taking online. So I had watched the lectures on my computer. And uh, during this class, when I would watch the lectures, a lot of times I would uh, watch them in bed and Laura would listen to them as well. And he was giving a whole lecture on pride. And Stuart Scott was and. And he's going through the 30 manifestations of pride. And one of the manifestations was um, if the people around you have to walk on eggshells around you or everyone has to be careful around you not to upset you, you can know that you're struggling with pride. And me, in all my humility... What comes out of my mouth in that moment was, oh, that's such and such. Totally, that describes such and such. To which Laura, filled with the Holy Spirit, and loving me, being a good wife, says to me, really, the person that came to my mind was you. And I said, what? You think, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of myself as easygoing. You think people have to walk on eggshells around me? And she says, that's how I feel sometimes. And this is after my professor had talked about how one of the aspects, one of the effects of sin on our life is we become blinded to even understanding our own sin. And I remember agreeing with that in principle, but I don't think that hit my heart. I was pretty confident that I knew my sin, that I could see it. I could see if I was prideful in those ways and God was showing me that yes, I too fall in the realm of sinful humanity that can be blinded from the sin in our hearts. And as he went through the 30 manifestations of sin, he challenged us to go through and rate ourselves, which ones we struggle with. And at the end, he said, I was, he, Stuart Scott said he was at a conference one time and a guy came up and said to him, man, did you write that little booklet, The 30 Manifestations of Pride? And he said, yeah. And he goes, I I hate you. My pastor gave me that book and I had 28 of the 30. And and Stuart Scott says, well, why were you blind to the other two? (laughs) In the sense that by our fallen nature, one of the root sins that we all struggle with is pride. And the reason why that pride often uh, is not defeated is because it's not seen. People aren't invited in to point it out. Uh, Wives or husbands may be too afraid to be honest and to help uh, their spouse 
uh, see what they cannot see on their own. Brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than just talking about the weather, need to talk about their lives, need to talk about what they're struggling with and invite people in to listen. Because when we talk, our heart comes forth. And so as we look at this, Jesus is striking at a major problem in my heart and probably a major problem in your heart as we think of spiritual pride. And remember, as we saw last week, that the only thing that can kill entitlement, uh, a heart that grumbles against God, is a heart that sees the gospel. This sees what God has done for them. And then every aspect of life is grace. Even your toughest day on this earth is better than what we deserve in our sin. So it's the gospel waking up every morning. How did Paul describe his life? I fought the fight of faith. I finished the race. I die daily. That hurts. And so the battle of faith is to, do, is to put to death the old man by trusting in Christ in the gospel. So as we look at verse 11 now, uh, the way your notes are, uh, this week, we're going to do it a little bit of a unique way, the way we look at this text. We're going to ask questions to it. And this would be a model way just to read the Scripture. Uh, when, when you sit down to read your Bible, uh, rather than just open it up and, and read, look for and ask these questions. What do I learn about Christ in this text? What do I learn about God. You want to know what the best part of the scriptures are? They reveal God to us. Our greatest treasure is revealed in the scripture. So not just to look at what God says, but he reveals himself in his word. So we're going to ask, what do we learn about Christ? Uh, This is called Christology, the study of Christ. And then we're going to ask the question, what do I learn about salvation? This would be the study of soteriology, the the study of salvation. Uh, And then we're going to ask, what do I learn about Scripture? That would be bibliology. What do I learn about man? That would be anthropology. What has God revealed to us about fallen man. The scripture tells us the advantage of the biblical counselor in counseling is we know who man is because the scripture tells us about man. And then we're going to do applied theology, which is, oh, that's interesting. Christ is like this and salvation is like this and scripture's like this and man's like this, that can all be interesting. You could read whole books on that. But applied theology is how do I attach my heart to those truths by faith and live it out? What's the application? So when we come to the scripture, we should be asking questions like this to the text. So let's do that together. Uh, Look at verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So a few things here. Those, are, those, those five words are important. On the way to Jerusalem. Back in chapter 9, let's not get lost uh, uh, in the forest by just looking too close. Let's zoom back out. Back in chapter 9, something important happened in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus started talking like this in Luke 9.22. The Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, was that clear? That was clear. This needs to happen. Then he repeats himself nine verses later, Luke Luke 9.31. It says, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So we're starting to put the pieces together. He's going to die. There's going to be a departure. It's going to be accomplished at Jerusalem. And then in verse 44, Luke 9.44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then in verse 51 is the key turn. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So from this point on in the Gospel of Luke, they're on the, Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's going to die. He's going to be glorified. His departure is going to happen. He set his face. He's on schedule. He's doing what he came to do. So when we read in verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, Let's not forget the weightiness of what Jesus means when he says those words. He was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Now, it's tough to know exactly where he was, but that's not important. We're told what we need to know. Verse 12 says, as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. So let's talk about leprosy. Lepers are those who have the disease of leprosy. Here's what MacArthur writes about it. Uh, Like its Old Testament counterpart, lepros is the general term for a number of skin conditions. The most severe of those is what we would call today Hansen's disease. And, and that's why when people talk about leprosy today, they're talking about Hansen's disease. Uh, it's known uh, all the way back to 600 BC from China, India, and Egypt, and from mummified remains in Egypt. So this is a disease that was around long before Christ's time. It was common enough in Israel to warrant extensive regulation in the Mosaic law of those suffering from it and and, uh, other uh, skin-related diseases. The disease is caused by bacterium, microbacterium, or mycobacterium, uh, discovered by a Norwegian scientist, G.H. Hansen, in 1873. The bacterium was communicable through touch and breath. Now, here's the effects. Leprosy attacks the skin. Peripheral nerves, especially near the wrist, elbows, and knees, and mucous membrane. It forms lesions on the skin and can disfigure the face by collapsing in the nose and causing folding of the skin, leading some to call it lion's disease due to the resulting lion-like appearance of the face. Contrary to popular belief, leprosy does not eat away the flesh, but due to the loss of feelings uh, because of the nerve damage, especially in the hands and feet, people with the disease wear away their extremities and faces unknowingly. The horrible disfigurement caused by leprosy made it greatly feared and caused lepers to be outcasts, cut off from healthy society for protection. So because there was no feeling in the hands and feet, fingers would literally be worn off and toes would be worn off. And you can go home and Google Hansen's disease and see the terrible effect of leprosy. 
Now, when we look at what the Old Testament, what, what, what the Jews in Jesus' days, uh, the laws they needed to follow in light of this disease, uh, it's helpful for us to understand uh, this account. In Numbers chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, we read, Command the people of Israel that they put out of camp everyone who is leprous or who has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they might not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses. So the people of Israel did. And then in Leviticus 13.45, we read, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear clothes, or, or shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip, probably like this, crying out, unclean, unclean. Anyone comes, you have to yell out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. It would be a terrible physical ailment to suffer from. The isolation from people would be worse. Leviticus 14.1 tells us, what they're to do if they're to be healed. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall look. Then if uh, the case of the leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them and take uh, for him, or the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed, two clean birds and cedarwood and scarlet yarn and hyssop and a whole lot more. Then they start the eight days of cleansing so that, that they can enter back into society. So when we read that as he entered the, vi the village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. We understand why they're standing at a distance. And they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They asked for mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is asking to not get what you deserve. That's what mercy is. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. And justice is getting what you do deserve. And they cried out, simply saying, have mercy on us. Recognize our state. The fact that they cried for mercy recognizes something of Christ's authority. Something that is beautiful. To cry to God for mercy is to worship God. It's to see yourself in need of something you don't deserve and you don't think you can do in yourself. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. Now, this is interesting because this is not what he did the first time he ran into a leper. Back in Luke 5, in verse 12, if we remember, it says, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, can you make me clean? Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one but to go show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for proof to them. So this is different this time. The first time 
Jesus did something important. He touched the leprous man, what no one would do. Because if someone touched the leprous man, they would become ceremonially unclean and they might physically attract the disease. But Jesus is a different type of man. Jesus touches the disease and he doesn't become unclean. The man becomes clean, which is incredible. He is the priest of all priests, the one who makes clean and is not unclean in himself. But here in our text, he doesn't touch them. He doesn't even heal them immediately right there. What does he do? He tells them to go show yourself to the priests. Now, if I'm them and I have this disease and I believe my only hope is someday running into Christ, seeing this Christ who heals everyone and he's there and I say, have mercy on me, master. And he says, go show yourself to the priests. That's going to be hard for me, I think. I probably already know how leprosy has been healed. And it's when he touches me, then I'll be clean. But he says, go show yourself to the priests. And so it would take a certain degree of faith to walk away from Christ. And we're told as they went, they were cleansed. As they went, they were cleansed. And ironically, the very people denying Jesus' deity and who hate his ministry, the priests are going to have to confirm that ten miracles were just done. How did you become clean? They're going to become witnesses for those eight days of cleansing. They're going to speak to what happened. And then in verse 15 we read, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, did four things. Turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And literally in the Greek, it doesn't say now he was a Samaritan, but Samaritan in the emphatic position in the Greek text, it literally says, a Samaritan was he. That's the shocker. Which evidently means, as we continue to read, that the rest of them were probably Jews. And just like the Good Samaritan story, this surprising account where the one who actually loves his neighbor and who actually shows uh, in a sense that he fears God is the Samaritan, not the spiritually proud religious elites, not God's chosen people, but a Samaritan turned around. A Samaritan thought there was something more important to do in that moment to turn back. You know, think about it. Why do you want Jesus? He can get you healed. He can do things for you. He wanted to worship him though. Man, what would it be like if you suffered from this disease and you just imagine, man, if if I could ever be healed, then I want to go do this and this and see this person and this person and and, and get on with it as soon as possible. But this Samaritan can't help himself, but he turns around and has to worship God, has to thank Christ 
has to do it in a loud voice where other people know what happened. And he said to him, and then uh, in verse 17, then Jesus answered this Samaritan. He says, we're not 10 cleansed. Jesus asked three questions here. We're not 10 cleansed? Was not my miracle amazing? <laughs> that when you're a long ways away from me, I can go like this, cleanse you all? Did I, did I not supernaturally cleanse you all? Where are the nine? Where are the rest of them? You see how this connects to the text before? Israel rejected their Messiah because their Messiah did not come praising them and thanking them. They felt like they deserved the Messiah. They felt like they were owed the Messiah. And Jesus says, you serve God saying, we're just unworthy servants doing our duty. But their hearts were not like that. They would expect the healing from the Messiah because it was prophesied, but they didn't view that prophecy as an act of God's grace, evidently, as much as they viewed it as what they're owed as God's chosen suffering people that don't deserve how rotten God's been to them. See, that was their attitude. That was their struggle in the wilderness. It was spiritual pride. It was entitlement. It was not knowing how great God was and how sinful they were. And so Jesus asked, we're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? To which we have incredible foreshadowing to what's going to happen and what is in the process of happening. Israel rejecting their Savior and the Gentiles getting in on the blessing of the Messiah. And then in verse 19, our text ends, and he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So those last uh, three words, made you well, is from the Greek word sozo. It, it, it literally means, for your faith has saved you. It's a different word for being cleansed earlier in the text. So 10 of them were physically healed and one of them was spiritually healed. Nine of them had a certain type of faith enough to go as Jesus commanded them, but one of them received true healing true salvation of the soul and it was a Samaritan. So let's ask these questions to our text. What do we learn about Christ? What do we learn about Christ, this healer? Now you have to know this. How often do you hear of miraculous healings by so-called healers and prophets out there. Just get a good look at what healing from the Lord looks like, what a miracle looks like. Matthew 4.23, when he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction from among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Assyria and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them 
all of them. And it was instantaneous. And there was no physical therapy for those who never walked, which would be impossible. That's the type of Christ the Scripture gives us. Not like these phony charlatans that stand up and claim all these things. They heal someone as they limp off the stage and declare them healed. They're not like Christ was. We have to read carefully and look. What does this say about Christ? What else could it say but that He's God? Who could heal all the diseases? Or Matthew 9.35, Jesus went through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's his first most important job. And healing every disease and every affliction. Every single one that came for healing got healed. Why? It was authenticating that he was the true prophet of God. That he was God himself. The point was not the healing. The healing was a demonstration of who the man is that's preaching the kingdom of God. Which is why so-called prophets today make a prophecy and then in their next breath they tell you they healed someone last week in that town over there. Because if you believe he did that, then you might actually believe a word he got from God. If you want a word from God, you open your Bible. We get all the Holy Spirit's words in here. And so, as we read through the Gospels, just over and over again, great crowds came to him, bringing them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. We can't I mean, we read it, we read it, but our minds go numb. We, we got to pinch ourselves and say, what incredible, what would this be like? Everyone that comes for healing gets healed. What sort of joy would be dancing through the town? You would think. But the fact that he's doing this is challenging proud hearts. So that rather than praising God, a murderous plan is being put together. He's taking our popularity. He's not thanking us. He's exposing our hearts publicly. We, we, we would hide from the people our wickedness. And he just tells people about our wickedness. They wanted a Messiah that would praise them. His miracles proved his deity. John 5.36 says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And then John 10.24, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than I and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He's saying, okay, if you're not going to believe my words, believe my miracles. Look at what I've done. You can't see that I and the Father am one? He says, you don't believe in me, not because you don't have enough proof, but because you're not a part of my sheep. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And so, what do we learn about Christ? That He is God. What do we learn about Christ? That He saves Gentiles from their sins. Remember Mary's song? 
that the proud were going to be brought down, you know, before she gave birth to Christ. The proud is going to be brought down and the humble are going to be raised up. There's this great reversal. The first will be last and the last will be first. What's Jesus like? He's like one who knocks down the proud and raises up the humble. Even Samaritans. He's, what's Christ like? He saves by grace through faith. That's what He does. That's how He does His saving work. He's never saved a good person in His life. He's only saved sinners. Which means anyone who's been saved has been saved wholly by grace. And they get in on that grace only through faith, trusting in Him. We see Christ's divinity in the fact that He, as He falls on His knees before Him, which is an obvious position of worship, He receives the worship from Him. You remember in Acts 10, when in, in uh, verse 25, Peter entered and Cornelius that uh, uh, was sent to Peter, met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Peter lifted it up, him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. <laughs> He's saying, what are you doing? Get up, get off your face, get off your knees. You don't worship a man. That's what happened when John saw his visions. Get up. Worship is only for God. But people fall at Jesus' feet like this leper and worship him, and he receives it. So what does that tell us about Christ? That tells us that he's God. Or how about when he rides in and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king is riding into Jerusalem. The son of David. This is our awaited Messiah. You remember what the Jews said to Christ? Luke 19, uh, our, our Matthew 21, 15. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear... Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you've prepared praise? And Luke's account says this. Uh, as he rode along, they spread cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they have seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're saying, how dare you receive the praise of the King of the son of David? They said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The fact that Christ received worship. You can't believe he's just a good teacher. Like so many who reject him today. Oh, he's a good teacher. He's got good teachings. No, he's, a, he's an evil man who received worship if he's not the son of God. But he received the worship of man because all things were created through him and for him. It was right. Look at Christ's character. He's the Christ of great reversals. Look at his character. He's like the God of the Old Testament. When God revealed himself to Moses, he's merciful and gracious. He shows mercy to those asking for mercy. If you know you're a sinner, if you know you can't stand before God, cry out to God for mercy. Cry out to Christ. That's what he does. He gives mercy to those who lose all hope in and of themselves and put their hope in Him. What do we learn about salvation? 
Listen to what Robert Stein says about the faith of the nine. He says, a second emphasis involves a soteriological truth, a, a truth about salvation. Luke warned his readers that one can experience God's work of grace and yet fall short of receiving salvation. So someone can experience a work of God's grace and fall short to receiving salvation. Ten lepers were healed. All experienced the beginning of faith for all went out in faith to show themselves to the priest. Yet like the seed that fell upon the rock, they received Jesus. Uh, they received Jesus' word with joy but only believed for a while. Only one soil retained the word and preserved in faith. Luke again warned his readers that one can experience God's work even in his healing but fall short of salvation. And this was the last state of, of uh, our, and this last state may in fact be worse than the first. Nine lepers were able to say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets but they'll be denied the kingdom. And he's referring there to Luke 13. And in the parable of the soils, the first soil, seed falls on the road. Bird takes it away. Second seed falls on the rock. What does it say? Jesus says, this is the person that receives my word with joy. Boy, a great thing has happened. But then there's no root. So the sun comes and, and it, dies off. And so we learn something about salvation. We learn that just because you're born a Jew doesn't mean you're in on salvation, even if the Messiah heals you and grants your wish of mercy. I just want to turn back to Luke 13 with you real quick and remind you of this account because this becomes a theme in Luke. Luke 13, starting in verse 22. He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. There we see that statement again. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside the door and knock, saying, Lord, open to us, he'll answer you. I do not, do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he'll say, I tell you, uh, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And now look at this. This is the key. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. The people will come from the east and west, from the north and south, and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some who are first who will be last. And what he's telling them is most you Jews that think you're getting in because I taught in your streets and because you got the Old Testament, you're going to find out one day you're going to see Abraham in that kingdom and you yourself are cast out. And this is what we see play out throughout the Gospels. God's people rejecting Christ and Gentiles uh, getting in. What do we learn about Scripture? Jesus is reaffirming the importance of the Old Testament as he's telling them to obey the commands to go back to the priests. Uh, what do I learn about man? Well, what we learn about man is man is sinfully... Uh, eh, entitled and selfish in nature. Nine of them received healing and did not return to Christ. That says something terrible about human, sinful, fallen nature. That they would not worship God or give thanks. How do we apply this to our life? We simply look at the Samaritan. What did he do in light of the grace shown him? He turned around. He worshiped God. He praised God. 
he thanked Jesus. He fell on his knees with a loud voice. He wasn't ashamed. Here's how we apply it. Look at what Christ did for you. Are you ashamed or will you shout out like the Samaritan about your mighty Savior, your great Savior? What a Christ we have. What a salvation offered to sinful man. Every one of them undeserving. But full inheritance in the kingdom of God becoming fully a son, getting Christ's perfect righteousness. You realize when you get Christ's perfect righteousness, what that means for you? You get rewarded. You get Christ's inheritance. You'll inherit the earth. Ephesians says a phrase that's hard to even understand, that in the coming ages, the Riches of God will be endlessly, the riches of His grace will be poured out on us after 10,000 years of getting what you do not deserve, rewarded for what you do not deserve. More is coming, more and more and more and more, which is why worship will continue forever as we're humbled and more humbled and more humbled at the mighty grace of God seen in the face of Christ. Father, I pray that there'd be no one here that would leave not trusting in Christ by faith. What that simply means is they admit that they're a sinner. They know that they're going to face you, a holy God, and therefore the wrath of God is upon their head. But Father, would you give them eyes to see that Christ willingly took on their sin so that he could stand between the Father with all of his wrath for sin and swallow it up so that the sinner can become a child of God. Father, we thank you that the Father was so loving that he gave his only Son, that we could be saved not by becoming good enough, but by believing Lord, I pray that you would make us grateful, thankful servants that say we're only doing what we ought to do and that we do it for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.